Well, every month um, we take a story from the pages of this month's edition of McLean's Magazine. Uh, and this month is a really, it's a sad one. It's a sad story, but it's an interesting story and it's a necessary story. It has been nearly 18 months now since four members of a London, Ontario Muslim family were targeted and killed in what police believe was a hate crime and an act of terrorism. The trial for the accused, Nathaniel Veltman, gets underway next fall in Toronto. He's yet to be convicted of any crime. But what he's accused of has left deep scars on both the community where the murders took place and where he grew up. Now, five members of the Afzal family, if you remember this horrific day in June of 2021, were out on an evening walk when four were struck and killed by a vehicle that reportedly accelerated and jumped the curb. 44-year-old Madiha, her husband, 46-year-old Salman, his mother, 74-year-old Talat, and the couple's 15-year-old daughter, Yumna. Her nine-year-old brother was badly hurt but survived. Back in June, on the one-year anniversary of that tragedy, we spoke with a close friend of the Afzal family, Sabur Khan. It's an understatement to say, like, they were literally the best of our community. Uh, Everybody admired them. Everybody, when they spoke of model sort of human beings, you know, uh, they, they mentioned this family. Only good came out of this family. Uh, within the, the Muslim community and, and the fact that they outreach beyond the Muslim community into the greater community. And all you had, I, I spoke to several people at the vigil who had encountered Salman or other members of the family. They would say always they had a smile on their face. Always. Even if you said the meanest thing to them, even if there was the most difficult of situations, they would have a smile on their face. And and they just worked hard for their future. They worked hard for Canada. And it just pains very much that this is what they got in return. That is Sabur Khan speaking back in June on the one-year anniversary of the deaths of four members of the Asphal family in uh, Afzal family rather in London, Ontario. Now, my, my grandparents, my mother and mom's parents, are from London, Ontario. It's a place I know relatively well. I spent quite a bit of time there as a kid, not so much as generations past. So it's always a place that I've thought of as being tranquil. You know, and I think a lot of people in London felt that way, too, in some ways, until this happened, uh, until a piece of what, you know, the kind of horror we see elsewhere in the world, uh, whether it be in the States or in Norway with Anders Breivik, um, all of a sudden appears on your doorsteps. So. One of the true challenges here, and again, as I mentioned, the trial for the 21-year-old accused, um, Nathaniel Veltman, starts in Toronto next fall. But one of the real trials or one of the real challenges here is to try to pay tribute to the family, to understand the pain of the community, to not open old wounds unnecessarily, but also to try to understand where this kind of, this level of hatred could have possibly come from, if only to try to stop it from happening again. So journalist Stephen Marr, someone I knew when I used to work in Ottawa, um, a longtime journalist and author, went to the area on a few occasions, both to London and to Veltman's hometown of Strathroy, to try to find out more about the story behind the apparent radicalization of Veltman and the impact of his alleged crimes on both those communities. The article is called An Act of Evil, and it appears in the November edition of Maclean's Magazine, and Stephen Marr joins me now from Ottawa. Thank you so much for your time. 
nice to be here, man. Thanks. What was your interest in, in the story to begin with? I mean, this happened a while back now. We're awaiting the trial. Um, what made you decide you wanted to go find out more about what happened? This is um, one of a number of things around the world that appear uh, to be quite similar, which is young white men who've become radicalized online, carrying out mass murders in the name of a hateful ideology. That's how it appears. I should say, I should point out that uh, the, the young man in question, Nathaniel Veltman, has not been found guilty. Right. Um, and his trial is, is, is coming. So, But it, it, uh, we have a pattern here that we need to take very seriously. Something like this happens. The, the horrible tragedy for one family, but for a community, for Muslims across Canada who, who feel rightfully horrified and frightened, and people in the rest of the community who are non-Muslims, both in the sort of old, you know, uh, white Canadian community who are horrified to see what's happened in their community and, and people in other minority groups who, who are fearful uh, who might be targeted next. So I yeah. think this is the kind of thing we have to wrestle with. How, how, why does this happen? What does it say about us? What can we do about it? Yeah, it's, it's hard to, to overestimate the kind of impact a single act of, of violence like this, of, of terrorism as it's, as it's being, at least in, in front of the courts, is being called, um, how much it impacts a community. You went to both London and Strathroy. You went to where this happened, where the accused grew up. Uh, what did you find? What did you find about, uh, about his past? He is a, appears to have been a very troubled, tormented young man. He w was homeschooled. Uh, he comes from a very, um, I, th I think it would be fair to say, a strict kind of Christian upbringing. And uh, there's some trauma in his family. His parents divorced. The, the legal documents show that it was um, an angry, bitter sort of split up. He was an adolescent at the time and started going to uh, high school for the first time, just as his parents were getting divorced. Right, because um, he'd been homeschooled, right? He'd been homeschooled prior? That's mm -hmm. right, yeah. His family attended a, um, a literalist congregation. And, and from what we can report, it appears that, that he was haunted by ideas of sin he was often angry with himself. One person told me that uh, he had harmed himself. So he was really in torment, psychological torment. It's it's not for me. I'm not a psychologist and I haven't examined him, but the, it, it appears clear that his mental state was very poor, uh, miserable. He was staying up late at night. His neighbors reported him making all kinds of sounds it appears that that he became uh, under the influence of of radical online hate speech. Right, and you, there's an interesting interview that you did with a specialist in this who says that this is a pattern that repeats itself often in these cases. We will point out he's not been found guilty again, but that this is a pattern that is played out again and again in these cases. The perpetrators, the suspected perpetrators, often fit into a similar mold. Exactly right, and, and that's not just when we're talking about hateful white supremacists, that's also true of Islamist terrorists. Mm -hmm. The first time that I started, sort of became aware of this pattern, actually, I don't mention this in the article, but when I was covering the, the death of um, Corporal Nathan Cirillo, who was killed right. in Ottawa by an, a, a, 
an Islamist influence young man. And in a sense, you see a similar sort of pattern. The ideology can change. I think it can be a mistake to focus too much on the ideology, although it's very serious and it needs to be taken seriously. But the, the, there's a sort of pattern of young men who are in terrible distress seizing on something that they find online. The psychological and family distress creates what experts call a cognitive opening, where they are suddenly susceptible to hateful and dangerous messages. And in this case, I mean, again, when, when you spoke to people who knew him, I guess there were some um, some people that in hindsight felt that he had behaved strangely, but there didn't seem to be any indication that that this level of violence, that he was capable of this level of violence, at least alleged violence. No, that's right. I mean, so I, I talked to, uh, he worked at an eggplant in Strathroy. Strathroy is a town of it's about 10,000 people. Not a very diverse place in his workplace. He was working with mostly a lot of other fairly young guys of similar background, white working class, uh, rural or suburban guys. And uh, they were left wrestling after this horrible crime. They were saying, well, you know, what did we miss? Should we have known about this? And it's a bit confusing. They find it confusing because he was quite good-hearted in the way that he dealt with them. So you really have a sort of um, uh, divided personality. He was kind. Uh, I tracked down a one. Uh, he was spiritually seeking, I think. And one one thing that struck me as odd is one of the churches that he attended while he was looking for a sort of spiritual home was uh, a, a congregation in London mostly made up of um, Africans and Afro-Caribbeans, right? right? For someone who becomes obsessed or who appears to have become obsessed with, a, you know, this racist ideology of the great replacement theory, he was at the same time personally able to comfortably mix with diverse people. And, and at work, one of his former co-workers was a Persian background, and he found it hard to believe that this young man could, could have held such hate in his heart. The impact on the community itself, on London that's becoming an increasingly diverse place, um, as we look back, how is the community and the Muslim community there? I think it's a work in progress. I'm, um, it's so painful, such a terrible rupture. Uh, and I s spoke with someone who I think you mentioned you've interviewed, a, a local lawyer, Ali Chabar, uh, with deep roots in the community, um, who uh, uh, talked to me about the, this feeling of fear that even going to mosque, that people start, start to feel like they're putting their lives in their own hands just to go to their house of worship, and that it becomes a, an almost an act of um, defiance to do that. Um, it's difficult to exaggerate the extent to which this has been wrenching and terrible f for the community. And for the extended relatives of the uh, of the family, uh, they were very private people, and I think that the, that the relatives and community members have been careful to, to sort of protect the privacy of of the family in me in memory. Uh, I find it heartbreaking, particularly the 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 girl who young mom was a fifteen year old student, and yeah. uh, you found a letter of hers, right? You 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 found a letter of hers that is. Um, yeah, it's it's heart wrenching. It is, yeah. Uh, the family uh, was kind enough to share it with me. I'm glad they did. I I, I hope that uh, it it helps make her come alive. 
she was a, a public spirited young woman uh, who loved art and music. And she, she had done uh, murals, a mural in the school, uh, sort of celebrating Islam as a religion of peace. And what, her personality comes through in this letter that she left. Uh, and at the uh, memorial march um, on the first anniversary, uh, some of her classmates and and uh, relatives her own age spoke about her. And you, you could feel a sense of the kind of passion and serious mindedness of these young Canadians, you know, that they, uh, you know, they're, t- they're terribly hurt to have lost their, their uh, friend and classmate and uh, cousin. And you get a sense because you can tell what fine young people they are, you know, it, it helps her to kind of come alive in a way. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, it really did. It was, it was the first time I had read something about 15 year old Yumna that really brought gave me a real clear idea of what she'd been like um and, and you're right i guess there is still the son the nine-year-old is still there uh with so there is obviously an attempt or a desire from the entire community to try to protect uh, the family very much and you know they don't want media to to print his name they want him to grow up to the extent that he can uh, you know, this is an orphan who's lost his his parents and his sister, and uh, my gosh, you, 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 it's hard to imagine what a what a difficult uh, life he's he's had since since this terrible event. And and you uh, you just got to hope, you know. And I, I think this is uh, uh, all the sense that I have is these people are are dedicated to protecting him and you know, doing what they can to make sure that, uh, that, that he has as normal a life as possible. You know, thank goodness, I, I find myself thinking over and over again, thank goodness for the resilience of children, right? Like children, it's their nature to bounce back to even horrible things. So, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's very, it's depressing, but we have to live in hope, I think. Yeah, and then the trial comes up in Toronto next year. Stephen Barr, thank you so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. Take care. And you can read Stephen Marr's piece uh, in the November edition of McLean's magazine. It's called An Evil Act. Uh, it's on newsstands now. You can look for the cover image of Team Canada soccer star Alfonso Davies. And you can always visit mcleans.ca for daily news updates as well.